Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Yeah, so it's cognitive dissonance. <laughs> it's um, you saying they're uh, you're saying they're uh, yeah. they they are refusing to believe in it because it is in their interest to refuse to believe in it. Absolutely. So uh, the uh, young generation is being truly brainwashed to only and only be um, taught uh, Einsteinian, Newtonian gravitation with dark matter, dark energy. That is completely established curriculum in all universities. That is the sound of someone trying to tear up decades and decades of work, ruin hundreds of careers and even even upturn. And this is no hyperbole, upturn our very understanding of the universe. This destroyer of worlds is Pavel Kraupa. He is an astrophysicist at the University of Bonn, and he's trying to erase dark energy. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. We'll be speaking to Pavel about modified Newtonian dynamics on this week's episode in a few minutes' time. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Science. And we get to all of those comments at the end of the podcast. Uh, before we uh, get into this crazy claim uh, about dark energy, uh, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us is Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU's School of Chemistry and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen. You're both very welcome. Susan, our first story has to do with the Orion capsule. The Orion capsule, yes. So it is part of the spacecraft from the Artemis 1 mission. Hmm. I found out today that... Artemis was the goddess of the moon, quite aptly named. And this is the part of the um, spacecraft that headed off to the moon, looped around it a couple of times and then has headed back down to Earth. And it has splash landed just off the coast of Mexico in the Pacific Ocean. And this is really significant because it completes the, t- the first test flight for this Artemis program. Um, the next of which will, will send astronauts to the moon in their planning 2024 so, um, Which is really exciting. It is really not exciting. not that far away to have it's actual not. astronauts on the moon again 70 years later nearly now. The, but they're going to land. No, they're not. They're not landing on the moon. They're going to do a similar flyby like they did this time. So or the What? Why would you bother doing that? Why would you fly around the moon and not land it with people in it? Why would you get people in it and hmm. not land? Like you could just use yeah. visual instruments but for the that. the early Apollo, Apollo missions did the same. So hmm. you but they've to... done that already. Oh. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> They need they're to, not going around the moon. They're not going around the moon and they need to obviously make sure that they can get the crew up and down safely. That's what the next plan is. So the Orion bit consists of two parts. It, it consists of the crew module, which is where the crew will sit. And then what's called the European Space Module, which has been developed by ESA, our, our space agency in Europe. And it will ultimately support that crew as they travel to the moon 24. So the Orion went there. Went, it basically gets put up into the the outside of, of Earth, it circled around for a bit with these two components. And then eventually the um, service module helped bring it all the way to the moon and around, but then it was disposed of and Orion, just the crew capsule, came back down. And, and it looks kind of like a fried egg, this thing. It's it kind of like a pear, maybe a kind of a, yeah, it's got a yeah wider bottom bit, which is where the heat shield is. And that wider bottom bit of the heat shield Basically, it's the hottest thing. As it came back into space, it's been the hottest thing that's ever travelled through the atmosphere. It got up to degrees of 2,800 degrees Celsius and it travelled around 40,000 kilometres an hour. It then slowed down because that's very fast, right? Coming back down. It is down. fast. Mm-hmm. Quite fast. Quite fast. So it, it then slowed down. Essentially, what they did was they get it to skim across the atmosphere like a stone across a pond. So it slows down, gets to about 20 kilometres an hour um, and then it landed in the Pacific Ocean, only around 10 kilometres away from the Navy vessel that was awaiting it. So, 
at 40,000 kilometers mm-hmm. an hour at 2,800 degrees of heat, mm-hmm. there's going to be people inside. There are. And this, it's not going to be like really, really uncomfortable really for them uncomfortable. to come back in. This is where the heat shield comes into play. So this heat shield has been stolen from the Apollo missions. And it has it is the best heat shield. Basically, it's like an epoxy resin. It's really complicated polymers that can dissipate the heat. And they have rigorously tested this. And they went back to Apollo because it really is the best thing. And that is the secret to slowing it down. The friction of the air slows it all down. But that heat that's caused by the friction of the air hitting the capsule is again, like, yeah, overwhelming. But it is dissipated. It does slow down. But and what I, about the bumping across the atmosphere? Wouldn't that be very uncomfortable? Yeah, as well? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's going to be very like, I don't know if it was physically bumping, but it's slowing down as it goes across the atmosphere. I mean, this is what these astronauts train for, right? They have to be ready. They go through their simulations on this. This is what they know how to manage. But the big thing is that it came back down to Earth safely and didn't disintegrate. And and now they're taking all the components of the Orion capsule and they're testing them, checking them, seeing what worked, seeing what didn't, with the plan that when they're going back in 24, that they'll be able to obviously bring the crew safely home. That is amazing. I'd like, also kind of terrifying. Um, That's science, Jonathan. All right, uh, very cool. Shane, our second story has to do with nuclear fusion, that perennial story that we've been covering for 13 years. Absolutely, and it's been in the news a lot this week because of a a breakthrough, and it is a breakthrough, at, at the National Ignition Facility in California. And they're one of two major outfits that are working on nuclear fusion, the other being in France, the European one. And um, what happens at the the National Ignition uh, Facility is they use lasers um, and they they take small bits of hydrogen and they fuse them together to create helium and a small amount of the matter gets transferred into energy, right? So Einstein's equation E equals mc squared, matter and energy are equivalent. So you can turn matter into energy. That's what our sun does. And this is a clean source of energy. So if we can kind of control nuclear fusion in power plants, we've unlimited sources of clean energy. And so this is a big step forward this week because what they've been able to do is get more energy out of the system than they have put in. The last time you and I spoke about this on the programme, they were 70% efficient. So they were able to get 70% out of what they put in. But this unconfirmed report from NIF says that they have gotten a 0.4 megajoules of energy out. What does that mean? That's well, roughly the amount of... It's not a lot. It's about it's the not, sense, is it? No, it's not. It's about the amount to boil a kettle, right? So, okay. <laughs> and it doesn't take into account the amount of energy that had to go in to power the laser because the laser isn't 100% efficient. So you plug the laser in and it sort of loses energy and then it fires laser light at the source and then that gets turned. I did not in. include the laser. Like they have to include the laser. You have to include like the 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 vacuum in it. Like because if we're talking about you know this 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 holy grail of energy where you're getting more out than you put in, you have to count all of the things that you put into it. It has to be more than that, surely. Yes, of course. But it is a significant step forward for the actual experiment itself. It gave out more than it uh, it took in, but the grander scheme it didn't. Right, so it's a it's a significant step forward in this process. But I do think I I I, I was, what I suppose I think is that headlines that we've seen in the news this week are misleading because they would lead you to believe that nuclear fusion is just around the corner. And whilst we are a lot it's about fifty years away, right? <laughs> <laughs> always. And whilst we are a lot closer than we were a month ago, there's still a lot of work that has to be done. But we're getting there. Yeah. I 
I presume if we just made this thing 50 times bigger, it wouldn't give us 50 times more energy. No, it wouldn't. doesn't work that way. Does it? <laughs> it wouldn't. But one thing that they've said is that um, a guy from Oxford who wasn't involved in the work said that, uh, you know, the, the NIF can do this conversion about once a day. If you were to have a power plant that was to kind of use this technology in any meaningful way, it would have to do the same experiment 10 times every second. So that's a big leap. Uh, so, not before I uh, retire, it sounds like, um, nuclear fusion. Uh, third story, Susan, has to do with inherited genetic diseases. Yes, so this is about genome sequ- sequencing at birth. So, as we know, genetic diseases such as cystic fibrosis and Huntington's disease are pre-programmed in our DNA. And, and they're very often only diagnosed after the onset of symptoms. Um, so, a new study, this is a, quite a big undertaking um, it's being carried out in the UK that will screen around 100,000 newborns for genetic diseases to basically speed up diagnosis especially um, of rare or difficult to detect diseases but what they're going to do is they are going to take entire sequencing of their genome so they're going to be able to figure out everything about this these children um, but they are only purposely looking for and allowed to report on diseases. So newborns already have this very well-known heel prick test, which takes blood samples between three and five days. And that screens for about nine diseases. Um, However, obviously hundreds of diseases go undiagnosed. So this study is going to recruit these children and they're going to do this full genome sequencing and they're going to screen for a series of diseases. How many? And which ones are still being discussed? There's a lot of public discussion on this mm. to make sure that people are happy with this. There's a lot of ethical things here. Mm. Um, and as I said, they're only going to be allowed to screen for those. And importantly, they've also decided that they're only going to be allowed to screen for diseases that have treatments. So the, what you really don't want to do is to screen for a disease in a newborn where there's no treatment, right? So this this ethical debate is still ongoing is exactly how they're going to do this. But it is a, it's a really, I suppose... I think an important question, can we help speed up diagnosis of these types of diseases early on with very small amounts of, you know, invasive action? Um, no, I mean, like, like, you know, we think of a lot of these diseases, if you knew from birth mm. that this it was going to happen, then you could certainly make good life choices around, you know, the sort of home you, uh, you build, mm-hmm. the sort of activities you allow your child to do or whatever. But for me, it's a really interesting uh, question that they don't screen for genetic diseases that you can't do anything about. Because as a parent, I think I'd still want to know. Mm. I'd love to hear from you, 53106. Would you you want to know? But, But like, if you could know, then surely... That would at least help you come to terms with it. You'd know what you were dealing with. I, I think I would want to know from from day one that this that that my newborn baby would develop a, a particular type of disease. I mean, that's what they've done. A lot of public consultations on this. So I guess there's people with that opinion and people with the opposite opinion. And collectively, they've drawn upon this idea that they're they're going to screen for diseases that of onset in childhood that they can be treated um, as, a, as a first point, I suppose, because it's only the start of it. Well, I hope um, that public scientists get access to the data so they can learn about these diseases and hopefully, uh, hopefully spot ways of, of curing them. Um, our final story, Shane, has to do with something that afflicts you very often as a glasses wearer. I am the only person wearing glasses in the room here. And yes, whenever I walk at this time of year into a warm room or a place with a lot of humidity, so like a pub basically, my glasses get 
fogged up and it's a pain and it's a particularly a pain if you have to wear a mask as well so can you imagine Shane teaching in a, a lecture room in UCD going in and I'd rather just, not yeah so I get foggy grasses and uh, that happens because of, of that change in temperature and humidity and so water vapour in the air condenses onto the cold grass and it, it's a pain and most of the stuff we use these anti-fogs just cause um, it's, 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 it's a way to kind of gather the droplets so that they don't form this misty kind of sheen on your glasses. But there's a new way of doing it. Enter science, right? So they have um, in ETH uh, Zurich, they have taken gold and they have put nanoparticles and they put it between titanium oxide. And they've made this thin film that can be put onto the uh, cover of your glasses. And the gold nanoparticles warm up the glasses, Right just by a small amount. And that temperature change stops the onset of the glasses fogging. Wow. Because uh, this is an issue for me swimming, you know, uh, as well. No, it's like <laughs> if you're ever diving and you get fog in your glasses, <laughs> it's a pain in the ass. Lab glasses uh, as well. Lab, lab glasses. Yeah. I, no, sorry. Neither of you can, can call <laughs> any sort of complaints here. You with your diving world. And well, lab glasses I can get into, well, right? But... <laughs> I, look, I used, to, I used to wear glasses. I understand. I understand it's an issue. But it, I mean, is, is, the, is that this problem essentially solved? Because that is, I mean, while it's a small, it's not cancer, it is a, it is a significant issue for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's a huge issue. So the, the, some of the problems are gold's expensive, even though you need a tiny amount of it for nanoparticles. So they're looking at other ways they could do this. And of course, improving the efficiency. Um, this would be very expensive at the moment, but it's a massive step forward. And, and sure, look, at if, if it becomes widely adopted, the price obviously goes down. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from the School of Chemical Sciences at DCU, Dr. Susan Kelleher. Thank you. Over the 13 years of doing this program, one of the things that I and pretty much anyone in the field of astrophysics have been trying to get our heads around is this idea of dark matter and dark energy. Mysterious things that we can't measure, but the maths just tell us have to be there. And to the layperson like me, these ideas can seem like rather convenient inventions thought up to paper over the cracks in our current models. And it was in a way, but we didn't have much else to explain what we saw in the universe. But is it possible that dark matter and dark energy don't exist after all? Well, Pavel Krupa is a professor of astrophysics at the University of Bonn and head of the Stellar Populations and Dynamics Research Group and one of the proponents of the modified Newtonian dynamics theory. Stay with me. He joins me now. Pavel, you're very welcome uh, to the program. Can you explain to me, for starters, where the idea of dark energy and dark matter came from? Um, that's a very good question, and uh, we to understand why we need to introduce dark matter and dark energy, um, one needs to go back to the way gravitation, the law of gravitation was derived. It was derived solely within the solar system in the 17th century, and um, when Einstein reformulated it in terms of a space-time uh, curvature uh, concept, um, he still only had the solar system at his disposal to uh, constrain his theory. Um, galaxies were discovered much, much later to be what they are. Um, that means like island universes. And uh, and so um, in order to um, model the motion of matter within galaxies, astronomers and physicists extrapolated the law of gravitation from the solar system to the huge scale of galaxies. And that extrapolation 
does not work. And one hope was to uh, solve the discrepancy by introducing additional matter because we see stars and gas moving around galaxies too rapidly. And so one needs additional binding mass, additional glue, which would then be the dark matter. Um, right. So, so what you're saying is there, there was this mathematical theory um, with not an enormous amount of observation. Then we, we got lots of these observations and we saw what was going on in the universe, how matter, universes, uh, planets and suns were moving around and it didn't quite work out. And to make the idea work, we, you had to add in this uh, stuff that we've never detected, uh, stuff that we've never seen, this idea of adding dark energy into the, the mathematics and then it starts to make a bit more sense because if you if you have this invisible stuff, whatever it is, dark matter or dark energy, um, if we put that into the equation, then everything seems to work out a bit better. That's exactly correct. So um, this is, is is not something still that we've ever measured, and we've talked about dark energy and dark matter on this program over and over again. Uh, with the sort of scratchy headiness of, of of thinking about how we might capture it or how we might measure it, and yet we still haven't really nailed it down. And that's why I was really interested to hear about the work that you and others have been doing on this uh, idea of uh, modified Newtonian dynamics. So if you're listening, stay with us, okay? Because this, this idea, if it turns out to be true, will absolutely be the most earth-shattering thing for the field of astrophysics, and indeed for the field of science in quite some time. So tell me, what exactly is um, modified Newtonian dynamics, and why is it important? So as I was saying, um, the one uh, hypothesis or possibility is to add this dark matter into the equation and uh, to try to solve the discrepancy one sees um, in the motions of the heavenly objects on uh, which uh, on scales much bigger than the solar system. The other possibility, and that is the possibility which Milgram, so Mordecai Milgram from the Weizmann Institute um, suggested, is to uh, change the law of gravitation um, or put it a better way or different ways to correct the law of gravitation to accommodate the new data which astronomers had discovered well after Einstein's uh, formulation of general relativity. And that uh, correction to the law of gravitation in the non-relativistic limit, i.e. the classical uh, limit, um, some people called a modification of uh, the Newtonian gravitation. I would refer to it as a correction to the Newtonian gravitation. And that takes a very specific mathematical form, which uh, has been tested uh, over and over now since the last uh, 40 years, and it has been incredibly successful. Okay, so so what you're saying is yeah. that this a different approach, um, which is, was pr- proposed a, a number of years ago and has been sort of tested and studied since, is to sort of say that what we the, what, the thing that we understand about gravity, the way we've thought about gravity, like since Newton, is wrong. And that actually, in different scales, it actually behaves differently to how we would have thought. And that, and I suppose we know that gravity acts differently on different bodies in different ways, but this is sort of an update uh, in theory to how gravity might behave in these really, really large scale environments such as galaxies and, 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 and the wider part of the universe. Uh, that's correct. Yes, indeed. Um, so we've just discovered um, this feature of gravitation. Um, it seems to occur, so the deviation from the um, hitherto used law of gravitation, which comes from Newton and Einstein, appears to occur 
when space-time curvature is ne is essentially negligible, and um, this might be a consequence of the quantum vacuum, um, as suggested by uh, Milgram uh, in a, a very nice research paper published in 1999. Right. So, um, for, for simplicity's sake, what you're saying is uh, there's a theory out there that suggests that Newton and Einstein were wrong. And if we take this as a premise, and the, the best way to sort of test a theory when it comes to astrophysics is to make predictions of our universe based on a new theory and then look in places that we haven't looked before and see if we find what we think we're going to find. Is that right? Uh, that is uh, correct. I would I would not like to uh, say that Newton or Einstein uh, got it wrong. They they did what was possible at that time, and um, uh, it was new data. Um, we just had to correct this empirical law of gravitation because yeah. we must not forget that everything we know about gravitation is just through measurement. There's no fundamental theory coming from some logical principles which uh, uh, gives us gravitation. It's a physical law, and therefore only obtained through observation together with some mathematical um, insights, of course, but it's only the empirical information, so the observation data which can inform us about what gravitation is. So we have these two possibilities. The one we say Einstein-Newton keeps valid, and then and in that case we need dark matter and then also dark energy to describe the expansion of the universe. Yeah. The other one is to say um, we need to change the law of gravitation, correct it to accommodate the new data, and then uh, there is no need for dark matter whatsoever. Right. And, and our understanding of, of gravity is still not, we don't fully understand um, gravity and, and why it works in the way it works. So the idea that you might update um, under, you know, the, our understanding of it from, from the time of Newton or even Einstein is not is not wild. And on the other hand, then you have the... Uh, accredited and uh, highly subscribed to theory, which is that there is something called dark energy and dark matter in there, and that's causing this uh, change to the universe that we don't expect. So this theory, which is a much newer theory, M-O-N-D, and there are various flavors of it, is my understanding, uh, they uh, then can allow us to understand why we might see quicker movement of galaxies when we expect them to be slower and so on. Can you explain when when you use MOND, how does it fix what we what we're, we're trying to fix when it comes to our understanding of movement of these huge bodies like galaxies in our universe? Well, that's a good question. How does it fix it? Well, um, we solve the equations, um, compare, so we build a model of a galaxy in the in the computer according to this law of gravitation, and um, then we can uh, predict how matter is to, supposed to be moving in this galaxy given the observed matter only, and exactly predict how this matter was supposed to be moving, and then compare that with the observations, and it works out exceedingly well. Uh, this is highly, well, successful, uh, one could even say surprising, uh, um, but that's what happens when um, a brilliant scientist, in this case Milgram, uh, discovers a new law of nature, then it will of course <laughs> work if it's the correct mathematical description. In this case it seems to be absolutely correct. So we have seen until now on all scales, this goes from star clusters, which means a couple of light years up to a billion uh, light years, we see uh, at the moment no uh, deviations uh, from this new law of gravitation, which was um, uh, discovered in 1983 by uh, Mordecai Milgram. So, so um, you're saying that there have been predictions uh, modeled in the lab based on this new theory that 
it necessarily gets rid of the need for this clumsy magic MacGuffin, as they say in the film uh, world, of, of dark energy and dark matter. Those predictions, some of them have, have, have turned out to be correct in real life. Isn't that right? Not all of them, though. Isn't that correct? Milgram himself has, uh, has acknowledged that not every galaxy or every situation that you've run through this works out exactly the way it's expected. Well, actually, to our um, work, um, it uh, is so that act- actually everything works except galaxy clusters. So those are clusters of galaxies. So that is one issue one um, we are looking at. I should co- also do a correction. That is, um, it's not, Maud doesn't get rid of dark energy. Dark energy is um, an, a different phenomenon, which uh, we can talk about, but it's not related to the um, not at least not directly related to the law of gravitation we are now currently uh, discussing. Dark energy only enters the game if we want to describe the expansion of the universe in terms of Einstein's field equation. Then we have to add dark energy because the universe is observed to be um, expanding with a given speed. And according to the theory, it should have slowed down because of all the matter in the universe but it's expanding too rapidly. And so to ensure that it keeps on, that it's expanding more rapidly than thought, one has to put in this extra magical dark energy, which is a very, very strange properties, which then rips the universe apart. And we are just now seeing the universe before it is being completely ripped apart, basically. Um, so that's dark energy, which um, is, is a different uh, type of uh, problem. Right. But, but it's true that if we... Um, because we can attack this problem in the one way of testing this new theory of gravity and finding that it works everywhere. And maybe in galaxy clusters, there might be some tensions, but that's very debatable. And then we are happy that we have this new gravitation law. We can also approach the problem by testing for the existence of dark matter. Is actually dark matter there? And that's a line of research which um, we have been doing very, very intensively. And uh, we have shown with extremely high confidence with much more confidence than we know that the Higgs particle exists, with incredibly high confidence that dark matter is not there, which means that Newtonian gravitation breaks down, Einstein's uh, formulation breaks down, and then we don't have to discuss dark energy because that whole formulation is is in the rubbish bin. And so we, we then have to develop a new cosmological model in which um, the concept of dark energy is at the moment not even uh, on the table. Right. Okay. So uh, just to bring you up to speed, if you've just joined us on Future Proof, we are talking uh, to uh, Pavel Kraupa. He is um, from the University of Bonn. He's one of the people who are uh, proponents of this idea of modified Newtonian dynamics, MOND. And there are a small number of physicists who are now saying that this is the way that we do away with the problem of dark energy and dark matter in our universe. And if you've been listening to this program, as I said at the top, for years we've been talking about this stuff, that it's there, we know it's there, but we just don't know how to measure it. And now there's a growing number of scientists who are suggesting that actually that was an easy fix but doesn't work out. What you're claiming will ruin careers. It will destroy entire avenues of research. And they say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The The wider field of astrophysicists do not recognize MOND as the leading theory when it comes to, to solving this problem. Why do you think that is? That is a very good question also. Um, let me begin to try to answer this question by um 
coming back to what you said that I'm um, promoting Mond. Well, I should be careful there because it's not that I'm promoting Mond because I uh, fell love, in love with Mond. Uh, as a scientist, I'm quite uh, without feelings for any of these uh, issues. Uh, so I, 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 just just to say, I do not buy that at all. Yeah, yeah. I don't. So, so, I don't believe that. Yeah, sure. I don't believe that. <laughs> Because scientists, <laughs> because every every scientist has a has a has a a, a favored idea and, and likes an idea. You can't say uh, I'm all the scientists in the world say I'm objective. I just look at the data. But if it's there, if it's something they've been working on and they believe in, then you know I feel they get. I feel it's natural for scientists to get attached to, it, and that's okay. Well, the, 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 you're raising a very very nice and uh, important issue. But it's I can assure you. Um, I truly have no uh, preference here whatsoever. The, the only thing is it's truly data-driven. So much of my work was spent with dark matter, right? Uh, the completely standard um, uh, gravitational theory. I had no reasons to move away from that, except that my calculations did show there were uh, major departures from what we observe. And so I started to investigate the um, uh, Milgram suggestion, and that is actually working out uh, much better. So I'm completely pragmatic. If I were an astronaut and I were to go to a, to a far distant part of the uh, galaxy, of our galaxy with a spaceship, and I would, I would be able to choose, am I going to use Newton with dark matter to steer my spaceship? In order, you know, to program its course and and and, and pilot it over to that over star on the other side of the galaxy, or would I use Milgramian gravitational um, uh, theory? Then I would absolutely only go for Milgramian gravitation theory because I know I would survive the trip. But if I use Newtonian <laughs> gravitation and dark matter, I would not survive the trip because I cannot predict the course. It is impossible, completely impossible, to predict the course of the spaceship with Newton and dark matter because we do not know where the dark matter is. While in Milgromian gravitation, we map out where the matter is and we know exactly where to steer the ship. It's, it's pure question of survival. Okay, uh, okay. so um, what do you think is stopping people from accepting what you seem to, to claim is evidenced in the data that actually dark energy and dark matter were a figment of our imagination for the past number of decades? Yeah, so it's cognitive dissonance. <laughs> it's um, you saying the, they're you're uh, saying they're, young, they 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 are refusing to believe in it because it is in their interest to refuse to believe in it. Absolutely. So uh, the uh, young generation is being truly brainwashed to only and only be um, taught uh, Einsteinian Newtonian gravitation with dark matter, dark energy. That is completely established curriculum in all universities. Usually, young research students uh, are not even uh, encountering these other ideas. It's not in the curriculum. They never learn about it. And um, once they grow up in the sense of doing a PhD research project, um, they are funded by where there is money. And that money comes usually and nearly only from the dark matter sector because they acquire money while the Milgromian gravitation research project or program has greatest difficulty acquiring research money, which means we cannot have students on these projects easily. So that means that there's a large body of scientists who are only trained to see the universe in terms of this Newtonian dark matter uh, picture. And it's a bit then like what Galileo um, uh, in, uh, experienced in his times, that one is confronted with a community which sees the universe in a, in a basically idealistic uh, uh, way, like being perfectly homogeneous, isotropic on on certain scales and beyond. And um, they have this description in their heads, which they've been taught. 
And to to break out of that is is extremely difficult. Well, I think. I mean, yeah. I mean, and I, I totally understand why it is. And and I'll say this: not in a. It's not a criticism or a joke. But yeah. it's you, the the sentences you've just said are the same ones used by those uh, who believe in conspiracy theories. It's the same sort of language, but. That doesn't mean that there there isn't a conspiracy, uh, and so I'm uh, for my problem is I, I'm a science broadcaster. I'm not a, an astrophysicist. I can't determine here what is truth from fiction, and I'm sure uh, there are a lot of people who uh, are are listening to this who are saying this person is claiming you know it's it's the equivalent of saying there are no such things as electrons. You know you know it's it's that wild to suggest that this entire time we've been studying the idea of dark energy and dark matter, that they don't exist. So it is a huge uh, claim. And to say that everybody's institutionally blind to this idea is a very, very interesting claim. So we'll have to follow that up on this program and, and explore it. But what do you think will be the turning point for scientists to decide that this actually is the prevailing theory and we have shut the door on dark energy? Yeah. Well, the thing is, we, we don't make claims. I mean, it now sounds like that because um, I've said what I said and it sounds like a claim. But um, when I speak such a, a sentence, then um, it's based on published research papers, which um, are very clearly de- document um, uh, the calculations done and the tests performed. So those are published in peer reviewed research journals, um, which means they are testable. You can go and check and to see if our calculations are correct and they have stood the test of time and we do explicit tests for the existence of dark matter now those are published and so more and more people are seeing and that's why uh, we have this interview because yes uh, i think uh, more and more scientists are starting to understand that um, the dark matter approach is not the correct approach in order to have a model of the universe and uh, that we need to look at uh, the uh, this alternative um, uh, and, and one of the great uh, uh, or maybe important arguments is just this recent research um, paper which we've published uh, on the st- open star clusters. So the nearby star clusters which uh, seem to be spilling out their stars not symmetrically around them but more to the front than to the back and um, this is a violation of Newtonian gravitation. And so this is now uh, showing uh, that Mogromian gravitation is apparently the correct description because if we use Newtonian gravitation uh, on star these star classes we cannot explain that effect and dark matter in this case cannot help in any way and dark energy anyway because dark energy is a very large scale uh, issue okay, so can so, you can you give me an analogy for 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 that work that you're doing um that would explain what what you're seeing that uh, Newtonian gravity cannot explain yeah, so, I mean, um, a star cluster um, is born out of molecular cloud. We understand all of that reasonably well. Uh, and uh, once the stars uh, have blown out the gas, the star cluster achieves a, um, a uh, equilibrium situation. So it just evolves. The stars are orbiting about each other and are constantly exchanging energy um, uh, amongst each other. Just like the planets in a solar system, they're constantly tugging at each other. Uh, and so in a star cluster, the stars are on chaotic random orbits and they constantly tug at each other. So some stars acquire energy and they, ultimately they leave the star cluster because they, 
they become too slightly too fast and then just spill over and out of the of the star cluster and then they become part of the galaxy and this spillover we can calculate extremely well in Newtonian gravitation and in Milgramian gravitation and in Newtonian gravitation the spill out of the star clusters this loss of this loss of stars from the star cluster is completely symmetrical here in the vicinity of the sun uh, where the galaxy has a very uniform field across the star cluster. And um, and so this symmetry where uh, the stars leave the star cluster to the front and to the back, back and the same number of stars are in the front and the back is extremely well calculated. I mean, you know, hundreds of calculations have been showing this. And so it comes as a shock when we now observe these star clusters with a Gaia satellite where we can, where now billions of stars have been measured to an incredible precision in the positions and motions and we can now actually extract the stars which belong to a star cluster, like the Hyades star cluster, or the Pleiades star cluster, or the Presepes star cluster. And we can see the stars around the cluster, which used to belong to the clusters. They're slowly leaking away from the cluster. And there's an asymmetry. The front of the cluster has more stars than the back. And this is absolutely not explainable with Newtonian gravitation. And it's exactly what Milgromian gravitation predicts because Milgromian gravitation is a non-linear theory of gravitation. Uh, it's a very beautiful theory mathematically also. Uh, and uh, that predicts exactly this effect. And so uh, this this really has uh, grievous implications because um, it, this effect cannot be explained with dark matter um, at all. I mean, there's no way towards, uh, with the help of dark matter, how one could explain it, because it's a scale of a few light years now only. Um, you've just been hearing um, that the, the, the sort of shockwave of someone taking down, you know, a theory that has been going around for quite some time. It, it's an extraordinary claim. I think it's something we're definitely going to follow up. Uh, but for now, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Pavel Kraupe is Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Bonn. Thank you. So, astrophysicists, lay it on me. What 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 do you make of um, Pavel's claims, and what do you think of this idea? Um, and uh, I mean, the idea is is insane. I mean, I, you can hear it in my voice. I just think the idea that we've been talking about dark energy and dark matter as if they were just a sure thing. The idea that they may not be real um, makes sense in a way, but is also just like what. Uh, Aidan McKelvey, producer of the programme, joins me to go through your comments from last week. This is a, I hate to say I told you so moment, but every dark matter physicist that we've ever interviewed, my first research question is, couldn't we just have tacked this in? It seems like we just tacked it in yeah, just it to make really the thing work. Yeah. It seems like, you know, and, and, and they all say, yeah, but, you know, it must be there. And we know, and people have, I mean, it's not like people have said, you know, we're not sure. People have been very certain that it's there, that the, the numbers say it's there. The idea that it's not there still has to be, you know, I, I this is a fringe theory. Of course, yeah. of course. So this is a fringe theory. But if it's real, oh my God. It is just very funny as a researcher to talk to the scientists who have like dedicated their whole life to something and you're like, have you considered the possibility that it's not there and that you're just kind of fixing an equation that doesn't work and the equation is broken? And every single one was like, Yes, I have considered that. <laughs> You've just thought of it now, but I've been thinking about it for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, so it'll be interesting to see comments, but we mu- I suppose we have to follow up with, with, uh, with an astrophysicist that, that doesn't support this here and see where we go. Last week, we were talking about hibernation um, and the idea that uh, we're not like millions of years away from actually being able to put uh, humans into 
deep sleep. Dave says, hibernation is all very well as an idea, but look what happened in Alien. Well, I mean, Don't the, problem, the, the problem wasn't the hibernation. <laughs> yeah. The problem was the alien. Yeah. It was right there in the name of the movie, Dave. Uh, God, I love that film. It's great. Um, Eugene says, does any hibernation occur in warm climates? I mean, it depends on what you mean by warm, but yeah, do you mean like desert? I don't know. I think I think it does. <laughs> I wish you I should have asked our hibernation. Yeah, I, I think, think they probably did. They tasted it in at the time of the program, didn't they? Yeah. We must go uh, find the answer to that question rather than just uh, guessing. <laughs> um, and uh, Vincent said, could, hypnoti- could hypnotism be used to facilitate hibernation? So I don't, uh, like that I'm pretty sure we can't do because um, we, we can't, uh, hypnot- hyp- hypnosis is a funny kind of, thing it's sort of a mixed state that um is difficult to sort of pin down scientifically we did it on the program not so long ago it it, it, you know there are chemical and physiological switches and cellular changes that we need for hibernation to happen and that's not going to you can't just be like talked into that yeah i I guess like hypnosis is like the power of suggestion so you would think you were hibernating but you weren't actually yeah you could, oh, yeah, absolutely. you could make someone think they were hibernating but you couldn't actually hibernate them and then we were talking about blind sight uh, you know this idea that you have two visual systems which I wasn't aware of and that actually you don't need your visual cortex to be in uh, in good repair to be able to see this is this uh, a, a, an experience called blind sight and we spoke to a researcher who had um, worked with mice where their um, visual cortex had been removed and uh, they could uh, they could see, and then there was a monkey that this had happened to, right? Yeah, was a monkey. Yeah, chimpanzee. Um, Sarah says, "How cruel we are to our fellow creatures! There are some things we just can't justify in the name of science. Nobody needed to blind that monkey in the first place." Look, I mean, I, I say we keep, you know, that we should revisit this. I really think we should, in the new year, talk about the justification of animal research, because all of an, all the animal research in the world goes through ethical review. There's no no question that. Um, scientists are told you must do no harm unless it's absolutely necessary for your research, make it minimum as possible, and then humanely destroy those animals. There are a lot of animals that seem to fall into that category. And for me, I think it's probably way too many, right? Yeah, well, we did talk about earlier in the year the the human on the chip thing, which hopefully will be in the long run will be the end to this type of research. Yeah, It'd certainly be a solution. I think that everyone would be happier if they can make it work. Yeah. Um, uh, we were talking about uh, consciousness as part of this conversation and someone says, very fascinating chat. Thank you very much. Definitely getting the book. Just a, a question. If we didn't need it at some point, is there a chance we won't need it in the future again? And this is... Consciousness. Our sense of consciousness, yeah. Or perhaps will it evolve into something else entirely? That's a question I suppose you can <laughs> never really say. answer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think if if if, if you know... I mean, wouldn't it be crazy to think that human beings could devolve again or or diverge as species, that there could be two separate species of humans again? It seems like a crazy idea. I but I guess over time... Over two, if we if we become a multi-planet species, I think that's yeah, absolutely multi- inevitable. Yeah, although consciousness probably now to do what we do seems like something the cost of which would be too too heavy to lose, I would imagine. Of all the things you would lose, consciousness seems... To be able to understand, plan for the future, imagine what's going on in someone's mind. That yeah, is very an essential useful. human. Yeah, we could know. go beyond it. Maybe if if uh, you take your science from Star Trek, and I do, <laughs> we're going to evolve into gods, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then someone said we're talking about the Arctic, and someone says it's Arctic, not Arctic. 
Yeah, but when you say it quickly, it's yeah. just the same. I'm not going to like... Hang on, are they saying Don't it's lecture Arctic me. They're saying Arctic. it's Arctic. It's Arctic, not Arctic. Yeah. I say Arctic. But like, it's a silent sea. Folks, um, our producer, Aidan McKelvey, is, is going on a fine adventure, traveling the world for a year. He's been producing this program, um, as you may know if you've been listening, for uh, oh, four years now. Certainly a long time. Yeah, just Longer so. than I care to look up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Between four and five years. Yeah. And he has been a patient uh, and wise and uh, wonderful producer. We have really... Um, you've really benefited in ways you could not possibly imagine as a listener from his uh, from his expertise his professionalism we wish you the very best of luck on your travels um, go and have the best adventure of your life you absolutely deserve it um, so thanks very much from all of us on the programme for all of your work for the past number of years and we hope to have you back uh, when your travels absolutely, are done absolutely yeah thank the, you Jonathan it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, thank you to all the listeners it's also been a pleasure to work on the show a genuine actual dream of mine before <laughs> I was in radio production at all it was uh, I had two favourite shows in radio I'm not going to tell you what the other one is you can try and guess what that is and uh, to get to produce one of them has been a great adventure so I'm going to go off do a different adventure for a year and I will definitely be back look if, out, if they'll have me look out for science wherever you go I will. I'll send you. I'll send you the old voice note. Probably a drunken voice note. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'll check this out. I definitely look and send us some photographs and videos as well. Um, it's been it's been a wonderful experience to have you as a producer. Um, I don't have favorite producers, obviously, but you're in the top six. Um, <laughs> it's a, a, a dream. <laughs> thanks a million, and the very best of luck. That's it from us on this week's podcast. Thanks to Aiden, Simon Keane, um, Steve Daunt, and Hugo de Silva, who's on sound. We'll be back with more on Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.